I've entitled my message this morning, because I, I liked it so much I gave it two titles, uh, The Easy Way or the Hard Way, or Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And I kind of liked um, when Matt Kirk was here a few, few weeks ago, he was talking about his, his grandpa telling him about the importance of, of landing the plane at the end of the sermon. So I'll know if, if I start seeing people do this, that it's, it's time to wrap it up. But I, I kind of want to go take it a step farther and file a flight plan. And so what, what does that mean to me? It means I'm going to tell you, you know, they say in speech class you need to tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So my flight plan is to get to the point where we can have a bumper, a bumper sticker that would be the, the destination, which is when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, choose the rock. Seems like I've heard that somewhere before. I can't tell you where, but um, it'd be a good bumper sticker. Our flight plan got its inspiration from a couple of Sabbath school lessons in our quarterly this month, or this quarter, uh, about Joseph, uh, finding rest in family ties, and also rest, relationships, and healing. Well, I taught the first one of those, and I, I really enjoyed it, and that kind of came about the same time that Pastor Zach asked me to speak, and so that... Um, gave me my inspiration, and I, I praise God for that. And I w before we dive into what, to the lesson today, I, I'd really like to put in a plug for Sabbath school. And I just want to, I'm grateful for the Sabbath school teachers uh, who work week by week to uh, provide a blessing for our children, for our adults, and for those of you who, who take advantage of the chance to meet together to study God's Word. And I really enjoy it. Uh, we have, at the moment, we've got a class outside here under the trees. Uh, and there's a class indoors as well. And then the kids' classes. But it's just a, a great chance to go over these stories that we've heard before, different aspects of the Bible, and to bless each other as we uh, talk about what this means and we're, wrestle with what God is all about. So I'd really encourage you to be a part of Sabbath School if you aren't already. And my second plug is for the, the free book table in the lobby. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but that's a great resource that's been going on off and on over the years, uh, led out by Ralph and Linda Greenup. And Linda just told me that they've got a, a, a stock of 2,000 books that someone has given them, in addition to the books that were already uh, available from being t recycled or cycled out of the library or from the school or various things, I myself have consumed quite a few books off that free book table in the past. <laughs> uh, it took a couple of, just a week or two ago. And I've read many of those books. Haven't read them all. Might bring some of them back. But <laughs> don't tell Ralph that. He, won't, he doesn't want them back. It's a one-way trip, I think. Uh, but 
I encourage you to, to look at that table week by week because there are some real spiritual treasures there. And specifically with our message today, which is about Joseph, that's a story I've been hearing all my life. And I hopefully you kids out here have been hearing that story as long as you can remember as well. But if you haven't, or you know people who haven't, that have kids that would like to hear those stories, there are Bible story books on the table. The Uncle Arthur, uh, my Bible story books, and uh, it's a 10-volume set. I don't think we have a full 10 volumes of any one of them there, but it's a good place to start. And just to, to read how God has been at work in the life of his people uh, through the years and to start implanting that in your children's memory, in your memory, so that as you read it again, you uh, can go peel another layer off the onion and say, I didn't see that before, but now I see it. So, we're going to talk about Joseph. And in addition to these Sabbath school lessons, I got some inspiration from the Lightbearers' Unbelievable Convocation, which was presented a couple of months ago. And so I'll reference that a little bit. There's three chapters in Patriarchs and Prophets which I encourage you to read, to go over that again, to just see how God was at work in Joseph's life in that situation. And ultimately, we're going to be flying over 50 chapters of Genesis. How much much time do you have? (laughs) There's a lot there. But I'm going to hit some high points, and I I pray that we will all be blessed. So Genesis, the first 11 chapters, I like the way David Asherick put it. It basically deals with four stories. Creation, the fall, the flood, and the tower. Out of a couple of thousand years of history, We basically have those four stories. We know a lot of other things were going on. We know God was at work, but it's summed up in those stories. It gives us an origin story, where we came from. Presents the origin of sin, which is the problem that we all face. And it gives us a promised solution in Genesis 3.15. There'll be a redeemer. But the summary that I get out of those chapters, those four stories, is will you trust God or will you trust your senses or or the opinions of man? Are you going to look at the evidence that God is giving us or are we going to go, no, that's not quite right? You know, at the the fall, God had, had told Adam and Eve, everything else is fair game, but not that tree. There's trouble at that tree. Don't go near it. Don't get involved with it. But they said, doesn't look like the snake's dying, so maybe it's good for me. And so they, didn't, they chose not to trust God. At the flood, God said, I'm going to have to do a reset here and to rest, you know, restart the process with these eight people. But there's a, there's a, you can join them if you want to. 
you can get on the boat. But people, by and large, said, no, I've never seen it rain. Why should I get on the boat? Those animals look kind of like they're kind of smelly. They might bite me. So what about the, at the tower? God had promised, it will never, I'll never bring another flood. People said, that flood was bad. I don't want to get involved in that. We better build a tower. Didn't trust God. So, as David Asherick put it in his, his presentation, you know, we're, we, we're flying through all this, this time and space those, with those four stories, and then all of a sudden the, the story just slows way down. And we've got the whole rest of the book is about one family. It is four generations of that family, but it's showing how God is he's starting to work. You know, he's been working in a big way, but now he's going to say, you know, we're going to start set to work to bring this Redeemer. And I need some people to work with to do that. And so this family faces this same question that, w- that everyone faced before at the flood, the fall, the tower. Are we going to trust God's way? Or are we going to say, I've got this. I understand how it's supposed to work. So God promised this family land and descendants as numerous as the dust or the stars. And it's clear that God is up to something big and he brings hope that this will lead to the promised deliverer. But, of course, Satan's worried about the promised deliverer too. And he, he's doing all he can to, to poke his stick into the, into the gears to, to slow that process down. And the process gets slowed down in some big ways as we go along. And each key figure in this family gets tested. And they usually fail at least once. Our first person that we encounter here is Abram, who followed God's call and left the center of civilization to move to Canaan. He was a heroic clan leader, saved his nephew and all the other people there, in so- uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other the kings from, from when they were taken away. He was very rich and powerful, but he twice led powerful men to believe that his beautiful wife was his sister in order to save his own skin. And once, according to the, the timeline, if, if, we, if Genesis is marching through history, Sarah was over 90 years old when he told Abimelech that it was his sister. She must have been a beautiful woman. She'd already given up on having children had laughed at the angels who said that, they, that she was going to have one. So Abram received promises directly from God, but at first we see him trying to fulfill them via, via his own schemes. Well, you know, maybe my servant will be my heir, or maybe Ishmael will be my heir. The guy kept telling him, no, it's going to be your, a son with Sarah. But... Finally, he, he believed and had the promised son. And that brought him to the hardest test yet, there on Mount Moriah, where God said, I want you to sacrifice that son I have given you. And he trusted God 
to fulfill the covenant even if he sacrificed his son. What amazing faith. It took him a long time to get to that faith, but what amazing faith when it got there. What about that, that son of the promise, Isaac? When did he face his crisis? I think that in a way he faced his crisis at the same time that Abram did. Jewish tradition, I've heard, is that Isaac was 37 years old at the time of Mount Moriah. Even if he wasn't quite that old, there's a good chance that he was a, a strapping young man with his 100-plus-year-old father. He could have run away. He could have resisted. But he said, no, I, I believe the stories that I've heard that God has told my father, and I'm going to go along with this. Submitted to be sacrificed because his father said God said to do it. What faith. Later on, he wasn't done. His life wasn't over. He had his own issues uh, of trust. He had his own problem with fear of a powerful man regarding his wife. He made the mistake of showing favoritism to one of his sons. He thought he knew what he was doing when he bestowed the birthright on Jacob when he thought he was doing it to Esau. He said, instead of saying, God, I think this is the time, what do you say? Am I doing the right thing? He just said, smells right, let's do it. <laughs> and um, that led to the, to the next cycle of of problems. When we get to Jacob, the son of Isaac, grandson of Abram, the family dynamics got even worse. You know, the, the lesson quarterly used the word dysfunctional a number of times, and one of my class members didn't like that so well, and so if you don't like dysfunctional, we can use messed up. I think we can all agree that the family of Jacob was messed up. He deceived his father to get the birthright. He was forced into exile. I don't think he ever saw his mother again. But on the way, God showed up to him. And he received God's assurance that he was going to be with him. Then as he had, he went to work for Uncle Laban far, far away. He got deceived himself. He ended up with two wives who didn't get along. Maybe he didn't ask God, if, you know, I'm getting married, Lord. Is this the right thing to do? And God might have said, you might want to look under the veil, but he didn't do that. <laughs> so he ended up with two wives, two concubines, 12 sons by four mothers. What could go wrong? There was conniving and mistrust all around. And so when God told him after 20 years, it's time to go home. Did he, did he say, okay, God, what's the plan? How do we do this? You know, I'm worried that Laban won't like it that I'm leaving. No, he went out. The Bible tells us he went out in the field with Rachel and Leah, so nobody could tell what they were talking about. And they made a plan, and the plan was to sneak away in the middle of the night. And to, you know, when Laban was off doing sheep business, you know, a couple days away, Unless that's the time to leave. And Laban didn't like it. He pursued them and he said, 
Oh, Jacob, why did you do this? You know, if I'd known you were leaving, I would have given you a party. Well, I don't know, you know we, if we can trust Uncle Laban or not, but um, it didn't make God look good. It didn't make Jacob look good. It just led to problems. Well, was that the end of it? No. Rachel got in on the deceptions and deceived her father regarding his household idols, which she apparently wanted to continue to use. Idol worship, right here in the household of the patriarch. On his way home, he was worried about brother Esau, who'd sworn to kill him after he stole the birthright, or tricked the birthright away from him. And he met Esau with fear and trembling, sent him a lot of very nice presents, just to say, you know, I got plenty of stuff, I don't need any of your stuff, you have all all the birthright, go ahead. And... He was afraid. Then he was really afraid when he wrestled with an angel all night long. And then when he realized that he had encountered God, he settled in Shechem. It's not clear why he didn't go straight to see Isaac, because Isaac was still alive at this time, but he didn't. He settled in Shechem, where there was a dark stain placed on the family by their encounter with that town. Simeon and Levi, two of the, I think the second and third sons, took revenge on the whole town and made Jacob say, you know, I am undone. You know, and this really hit me uh, a year or two ago when we were, I went through the, the story of Genesis with Linda. She was having a Bible study with some of the ladies and just... Finally, Jacob hit rock bottom in this episode of Shechem and Simeon and Levi. And he said, I'm undone. I I can't fight these people. We have to leave. And But this is the point where he finally had his family get rid of the idols. And so I think, in a way, this was the final turning point for Jacob. And he decided to trust God all the way. But even then, he, like us, made some more mistakes. So now, as we're on our flight over the book of Genesis, we're over our target. Joseph, the 11th son, but the first son of of Jacob's favorite wife, his own miracle baby. You know, the story is full of miracle babies. We've got Isaac. We've got Jacob and Esau. They were miracle babies. They were... They were wondering if that was going to happen. And now, finally, Rachel has a baby. And Joseph, uh, Jacob was overjoyed. And as this boy grew, he could tell that he was different. The book Patriarchs and Prophets tells us he was different from his brothers. He quotes, love to obey God. He manifested gentleness, fidelity, and truthfulness. And Jacob loved him, quotes, more than all his children. Was that a good thing? It might have been true, but it's not a probably wasn't a wise thing to let it be known. Because that favoritism led to jealousy. He built made that special coat. And he when he had as he was getting older and he was kind of going out in the fields with his brothers, he came back and told Dad, you know, I'm I'm concerned about what the boys are doing. You know, the they're they shouldn't be doing that. And that, that, of course, he hadn't, hadn't figured out that snitches get stitches. 
And then he, he naively shared his, his dreams. That didn't popularize him with anybody. And it led his brothers to hate his purity. They, it aroused in them the spirit of Cain, that, which led Cain to kill his brother Abel. So when Joseph visited his brothers far from home, they plotted to kill him. They said, we've got the opportunity. This, this has got to stop. We are just, this is not, we have had too much from this kid. But then almost immediately, they started to have cold feet. Reuben said, well, let's not kill him. Let's put him in the pit. And he's gone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him out later. And then Judah said, well, let's not leave him in a pit. Let's send him to sell him to Egypt. And, you know, we'll make a little money. We won't really kill him. We won't let him starve to death. And it won't be really blood on our hands. And so Judah led out in selling him to Egypt. Joseph pleaded with them. And they all felt, but they all were told, felt that they had gone far, to, too far to retreat. You know, we just, you know, if, if we go back and, and he tell that dad hears about, you know, what we threatened to do, that's really going to be bad. So the brothers went home, dipped the coat in blood, said, you know, I, I don't know what happened. We found this coat. Is this Joseph's coat? Uh, looks like something bad might have happened to him. And so the deceiver, once again, is deceived. And he reacted very dramatically. They, he w- they were unable to comfort him. And this is, you know, we see people experiencing grief. This sounds like this was above and beyond what we're used to seeing. This was a very public grieving for for weeks and months perhaps and they were terrified and hid their guilt how long do they hide their guilt for many many years and they probably suffered a lot with it as they saw their father's grief and this life that they were going through these brothers you know we think of the ten commandments as a restriction on us as something that limits our ability to enjoy life. But think about all the commandments that these brothers had, had broken and how it was affecting their life now. This reminds me of uh, about a month ago, we were in, in Boulder, Colorado for my nephew's wedding. And the, the pastor there, Jeff Patterson, um, enjoyed his sermon. And at the wedding, we were talking to him about it. And his wife says, well, tell him what you said last week. And it was like, well, what did you say last week? He said, well, I got this saying. It says, God didn't give us the Ten Commandments to keep us from going to hell when we die. He gave us the Ten Commandments to keep us from living in hell before we die. And that just really, I think, fits the picture of what these brothers were living through. They were living in hell because of what they had done to their father and to their brother. So Joseph, 17 years old, all alone, headed for a fate possibly worse than death, faced a crisis. He had choices. He said he was a slave. What could he choose? Well, 
he could choose how he was going to handle this situation. He could say, I'm going to run away. First chance I get, I'm going to head for the desert. Well, with a chain around your neck, maybe you can't do that very well. He could have decided, I can't live this way. I'm going to just you know, rush the guards and maybe they'll kill me. You know, suicide by Ishmaelite. He could decide to fight back subtly or more directly and decide to be the worst slave ever. That probably wouldn't work out very well. He could take the devious approach and pretend to cooperate. Maybe I can, you know, make a life with this deal. Or he could choose to fully cooperate, whether because he was hoping for mercy, because he was afraid, or because he trusted God. And according to patriarchs and prophets, it's because he trusted God. And this is what I think really got me started on this topic uh, as they pointed out in the lesson. Um, and then I read it, more of it for myself. And I'm going to summarize. This is from pages 213 and 214 in Patriarchs and Prophets. Just hit some of the high points there. For a time, Joseph gave himself up to uncontrolled grief and terror. He learned in a few hours that which years might not otherwise have taught him. He became unspoiled quickly. Then his thoughts turned to his father's God. He remembered all the stories he had heard and the promises made by God. All those Bible stories that his dad had been pouring into him, probably a lot of stories we don't know, but that were part of their tradition. Uh, of how God had worked. Were, those had been being poured into him since he was little. And he believed that the God of his fathers would be his God. He says, if I, you know, my father is fully convinced that God is real and God is working in these ways. I want him to be my God. He then and there gave himself fully to the Lord quotes, he would serve the Lord with undivided heart. One day's experience had been the turning point in Joseph's life. Its terrible calamity had transformed him from a petted child to a man, thoughtful, courageous, and self-possessed. So on our flight, we're going to make a touch and go. We're going to, you know, how the pilots come down, they practice landing, and then they go around again. So we're going to touch again on our, our key thought, which is when, you're, when you are between a rock and a hard place, choose the rock. Joseph chose the rock, God, and it was the pivotal point in his life. So how so? Well, you know a lot of the stories of Joseph's life, but let's just look at them briefly. Because this one decision set the course for his life. When he got to Potiphar's household, which arguably there could have been worse places to end up in Egypt, wasn't the salt mines. Um, so maybe that was, saw God blessing him right there, that I got, you know, at least I ended up in a house. Uh, he saw God, he chose to be the best slave that he could be to represent God as best he could and to 
show what God was doing in his life by the way he lived, his, lived in that household. And it showed. Potiphar quickly moved him into positions of responsibility. And that, you know, that was just natural to Joseph. And as he lived that natural life, when the next trial came, when Potiphar's wife came after him, he knew the answer before he got to that point. He said, no, this would be a great evil to do against God and my master. So it wasn't so much a temptation as an annoyance. When he got sent to the dungeon for something he didn't do, he said, this is less good, but how, what, how do I react? I'm going to have to keep reacting the way I've always reacted. I'm going to have to keep doing my best, and I'm going to be the best prisoner I can be. And soon, that had its own reward. When he had to, was disappointed in not getting to his uh, uh, abilities brought to the attention of Pharaoh, the injustice of his situation, he didn't say, well, okay, I've had enough, I'm giving up on God. No, he kept doing the best he could that with God's help. And before we know it, 13 years after arriving in Egypt, he's in a position of great responsibility as second in the kingdom. But with great responsibility comes great responsibility. Because, you know, as we mentioned in Sabbath school class, somebody said, you know, talking about power and you know, absolute power corrupting, absolutely. So he was close to absolute power, and he could have, you know, made a wrong turn there. But no, he kept focused on his father's God, his God at this point. And so he knew the answer before the temptations even came. And then perhaps, you know, th- all these trials that Joseph faced were different. And I don't know which one was the hardest. But he had the same answer every time. It's kind of like healthful living. If you read these books about healthful living, it kind of starts to get a little boring after you get past heart disease and diabetes and uh, inflammation and various things because the answer is always the same. It's plant-based, whole food diet. And so here, I'm not saying that, that the right answer in, in, in life is, is boring, but Joseph knew, <laughs> Joseph knew it. He knew what to do when he had an opportunity to, for revenge. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. He knew what the answer was and how he was going to behave. He knew the answer before the trial ever came. Here we come back to my first title. He had chosen the easy way long ago. Meanwhile, what about his brothers? His brothers had chosen the hard way and they'd been living out their lives in Canaan, living with their father's grief for maybe 22 years. So there was the 13 years that uh, Joseph was a slave and in the dungeon. There was seven years, good years of prosperity where he was, you know, collecting all the goodness. Um, And then a couple of years as... Um, as the famine set in before his brothers probably showed up. And had his brothers changed? Had, they, had their lives 
gone any, in any different direction during that time? Well, that was a question Joseph wanted to know the answer to. And when they showed up in Egypt, Joseph played it cool and worked, out to fi- worked to find out just what they were made of. Brother number one, Reuben, um, kind of hadn't completely gotten there yet. He said, when, when, the, when the subject came up and they were saying, wow, this is happening because of what we did to Joseph, Reuben tells, starts to blame the other brothers. He said, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. And then I think the, the craziest thing in Reuben's life was when, he off, when his father said, no, I can't let Benjamin go down there. He's going to die just like Joseph did. Reuben says, don't worry, Dad. I'll bring him back. If I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons, your grandsons. Uh, Jacob says, no, that's not a good deal. I don't, I don't like that answer. <laughs> so and that's the last we hear of Reuben. We don't hear about Levi and Simeon, except for Simeon was the one singled out to be put in prison for uh, the time when the brothers go back to get Benjamin. But we do know that before we pass by Levi, that something must have changed in Levi's life. He became the father of the priests and Levites. Something, somehow he became must have become some sort of a spiritual leader in the, in the group. And, you know, if you read, I think it's Genesis 32, you wonder, how did he ever get there? Something about his life made him realize he needed to change. So Judah, brother number four, the one who had said, let's sell him as a slave to Egypt. When it came time to convince dad that we need to... T- go back to Egypt. We're going to starve to death if we don't. I got to take Benjamin with me. He won't, the man down there won't see us if we don't bring Benjamin. Rather than saying, you know, we'll make, make a deal this way or the other. He said, all I have to offer is that I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. And I will bear the blame before you all my life. Well, if you want a little light reading about Judah and where he'd been, you can look at Genesis 38. But he had faced some difficult things in his life. But he apparently was a changed man. Because he was willing, as we see when Benjamin has the silver cup left in his sack. And Joseph says, no, I'm a fair man. I'll just keep him in prison. Judah says, no, don't. I can't let you do that. Take me instead because I can't bear to see my father's grief if Benjamin doesn't come home. And so Judah from gone, had gone from one who was willing to sell his brother into slavery to becoming one who was willing to become a slave in place of his brother. And so it's no wonder that he, it was through his line that the Messiah was to come. Another good sign uh, that Joseph saw was that all the brothers didn't react with jealousy when Benjamin showed favoritism, was shown favoritism. You know, he got 
extra clothes and he got extra food and they said we're not we're not taking offense at that so speaking of the hard way how would you have liked to have been a fly on the wall in that room when Joseph revealed himself <laughs> what an awkward moment terrifying moment yet joyful moment and jo- Joseph wasn't one to hide his emotions or he kind of sometimes hid his emotions but I, I counted at least six times when he cried in the book of Genesis <laughs> he was always going off to weep <laughs> and some of it I think was weeping for his brothers and weeping for what had happened to his father and maybe weeping with gratitude for how the God was working things out I don't know Imagine the brothers going home to tell dad the good news. Uh, you know, dad, that what we thought happened to Joseph <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> He's alive. <laughs> and maybe we knew about that. <laughs> um, imagine the brothers living in Egypt with Joseph for 17 years before... Jacob died, waiting to see what would happen when dad was gone. That was one of the first things they did. They said, please be merciful to us. You know, don't do anything to us. You know, we're sorry again. And, but Joseph, once again, knew the answer all the way along, even if they didn't. He had no plans for revenge. He said, stop. God intended this for good. This, and he maybe didn't have, he didn't express this, but I think as we look at it, we can express it, that this was part of fulfilling the covenant. That God was giving our family land and descendants. As David Ashford pointed out, you know, in order to have, um, you need a place for a family to grow undisturbed and so they were in there there in Egypt they greatly multiplied so God was giving them descendants before he took them back to the promised land so the covenant was being fulfilled and so that we can become a great nation and also if you look at it this was preserving the avenue for the Messiah because that's ultimately what this story is all about is God working through this problem to get to the Messiah. So, why did Joseph know the answer? What was it that was different about him than his brothers? I would like to propose that he had allowed God to heal him 39 years before on the way to Egypt. God was still working to heal his brothers, and apparently he did uh, to a large degree, but it took a lot longer, the easy way or the hard way. God is offering healing to us every day, and unfortunately we often take the hard way, but God keeps going, here it is, I want to give you the easy way, choose me, choose my ways, and it It may not seem like it, but it's going to work out better uh, this way than your way. So in the uh, teacher's quarterly, 
on this lesson, Mark Finley uh, pointed out two eternal truths that I want to share with you. One is though we may go through trials and face difficulties, this does not in any way mean that God has forsaken us or loves us less. God's love reaches us where we are, no matter what life throws at us. So God reached Joseph in a dramatic way, and Joseph grabbed hold and, and went with it and, it, and it paid off dramatically. But God, was God trying to reach anybody else in this story? He was trying to reach the brothers, the children, the Egyptians. Can you imagine the Egyptians? Their Pharaoh had his dreams foretold or interpreted, and they came true. That story must have gotten around. God was seeking to, you know, was ultimately seeking to save the whole world. So number two, the challenges we face are often preparing us for something far greater than we can imagine. God has a plan through it all and is working to accomplish his ultimate purpose in our lives. Joseph's genetics or environment did not determine his future. His choice to trust in God did. So as I'm thinking about this story, I have a couple of other truths that I'd like to add. One of them was, is that forgiveness sets us free. Without forgiveness, we remain victims. With forgiveness, we can live in peace no matter what is thrown at us. What if Joseph hadn't forgiven his brothers? He'd always been angry at them. He had just been surviving rather than thriving because he had forgiven them so that he could move on with his life. So forgiveness enables us to live at peace. Whether we've been, we feel we've been wronged by family or friends, church issues, government, health, work, living with resentment doesn't help us or the situation to get better. The brothers thought they were gaining freedom when they got rid of Joseph. But instead of finding rest, they had been plagued by a guilty conscience all those years. Their deed had led to restlessness and a paralyzing fear of God's retribution. So forgiveness sets us free. And fourth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was also the God of Joseph and all his brothers, and us today, and the blessings, the guidance, the opportunity to walk with him through trials, to trust him, to love him, was and is available to all of us. So on our entering our final approach here, haven't seen anybody do this yet, so thank you. <laughs> Here's some things to think about this week. Are we letting God heal us or are we still dysfunctional? Or are we somewhere in between? We all have things that are messed up in our lives, but God's pulling us towards Him and wanting to heal us. Are we living in fear of our situation? Whatever that situation is that's, that's getting you down. Are we wishing we could be rid of those annoyances in our lives? 
Are we taking advantage of the opportunity God gives us to be healed from the problem of sin? And that's what we really need is to be healed, not just forgiven, not just our sins papered over, but to be us to be truly changed so that we don't have to live hell on earth, but that we can live with him because we're doing things his way. So he doesn't want us to be living life apart from him and living in fear. Joseph took the opportunity to choose God's way, and I pray that each one of us will too. So as we land, we fill out our logbook where we've, where we've come to. I think the thing I want you to, to go away with is when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, choose the rock. Thank you. And so just to help us to remember that, that two texts, Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So if we trust in God, that's what's going to give us perfect peace. And then Isaiah 39, I'm not, not Isaiah, Psalms 139, 23 and 24. It refers back to our last song, Father God. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I just love the line in this song. May my steps be worship. May my thoughts be praise. May my words bring honor to your name. And I think that's the life that Joseph lived. And that's my prayer that that's the life that each one of us will live uh, going forward. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father, you have seen so many of your children choose the hard way. You've seen us choose the hard way. To choose the hard place and not the rock. Lord, we pray that as we think about the story of Joseph and what you did in his life, how you changed him from a spoiled child into a grown-up man who trusted in you, that you will do the same thing in our lives and that you will continue to heal us from from our desire to live our lives apart from you. So just be with us in this week. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit and keep these thoughts rattling around in our minds as we go from this place. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.